Welcome to The Wayne Nicholson Show, where our guests share their fascinating stories. If you have any questions or would like to DM us, we would love to hear from you. We also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page. This episode is brought to you by Egypt Fun Tours. Now, I always said if Indiana Jones was to take a tour throughout Egypt, then Egypt Fun Tours would be the company he would book through. I can vouch personally having booked this company when traveling to Egypt in 2019. If you are looking for a professionally guided service which is knowledgeable, fun and sometimes off the beaten track, then you can't beat Egypt Fun Tours. You see, my wife and I went with the private tour which was personalized to our own interests and needs which you can do with Egypt Fun Tours. We travelled from the south visiting beautiful Abu Simbel right up to the magical Alexandria. We got to spend alone time, would you believe, in the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid as well as camping with the Bedouins in the White Desert. We learned how to read hieroglyphs and we visited the beautiful temples of Abydos and Dendera which sometimes is not included on tours. So for more information on Egypt Fun Tours check out their Facebook page, Egypt Fun Tours, or their website, egyptfuntours.com. This episode is also brought to you by Delhi's Continental. From just one pop-up and one sandwich, their reputation spread quickly, selling out whatever they prepared in 20 minutes. Boasting their Continental rolls are the best in Australia with every ingredient fresh and made in-house. Now, within months, these two owners, Stead McCluder and Aldo Putsu, had already graced the pages of magazines, websites and newspapers. Rumours are now stirring that this could be big. If you are interested in what all the fuss is about, and you are lucky enough to live in Perth, Western Australia, why not head down to Delhi's Continental, number 2 861 Beaufort Street, Inglewood, with their grand opening set to be this summer 2021. For more information, you can check out their Instagram and Facebook page, Delhi's Continental. My guest today is a project officer and a clinical nurse specialist for WA Health. She has worked in numerous hospitals around Perth, Western Australia, but you see it's her charity work which has impressed so many people. Jane is the director of Homelessness We Care. Now rain, hail or shine, I've seen Jane on Facebook bringing so many people together with smiles on their faces to feed the homeless. I'm proud to say I've known this beautiful human being now for many years, and I've wanted her on the show since I've started this podcast. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce you all to a good friend of mine, and I would say Perth's angel, Jane Armstrong. So Jane Armstrong. Hello. <laughs> it's only been two years since I've wanted you on, and <sighs> finally here. Yeah, time's gone so quickly. I know, like, um, so much has happened though in two years. I mean, with the world. Oh, absolutely. Think about it. Yeah. I was just saying the other day to Jocelyn, um, I think, you know, we look at ancient history of the building blocks of society today came from our ancient past, like Greece and Rome and mm-hmm. with the Senate. I think in a thousand years, people will be looking at this time as the building blocks of what's going to happen. As in, we're in the information age, mm-hmm. you know, we've gone from horse and cart mm-hmm. to space flight. Oh yeah, it's a bit scary. Isn't to, it? it could be colonization of an intergalactic species. I mean, you know, huge, huge things. Absolutely. But you know, as with technology, there is repercussions and effects of that, especially with the young. And I thought, who better to get on uh, to talk about also what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about what you do for a living, but also what you do in charity work, mm-hmm. how you've seen the differences in the last five, 10 years. Don't give away how old I am. <laughs> yeah, 60 years ago, Jane, when you first started. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> so tell everybody, what do you do for a living? So my paid role is a, um, I guess I'm a, a community mental health nurse. Yep. Um, my official title is clinical nurse specialist, which is kind of like middle management, I suppose. Uh, okay. And I'm a senior mental health practitioner. So that's my, that's my paid role. How did you get into that? And, and why did you oh, go that way? Was um, it, was it intentional from the beginning? No. So when I was growing up, I was either going to be a nurse or a cop. Oh, is that right? Um, and I was too fat to be a cop. So <laughs> nursing it was. Um, 
But I, I very, very quickly realized that as much as I loved uh, nursing in general, which is, you know, looking after the physical health, um, what really mattered to me was actually being able to talk to people and have a rapport with people and, and sitting there and actually connecting with them and, and having that, um, that really heart-centered conversation. Yeah. And you can't, you can do it in general nursing. You just don't have the time. Because mm, you you've got, got so many patients. And... Yeah, or it's, it's really complex. So uh, one of my, I, I started as an enrolled nurse. That's, that's kind of like the lowest level of nurse, baby nursing. Sure. One of my practicums was at Greylands. And... I remember that. Oh, God, you are giving my way my age. No, well, actually, <laughs> that's what I remembered your job being mm. when I met you. Mm, mm. Well, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was young and I just I fell in love with it because it was real. It was speaking to people. It was being able to see them as the person, not the illness. That's important, right? It's so important in so many ways. And certainly when you see someone as the, the person, you see them as the, the physical body and the spiritual body and uh, the, the sexual body and the mental health body. And it's, 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 that's what people are made up of. It's not just a physical illness. I think so. Yeah. I think people are starting to realise that now. It's, yeah, it's been a long time coming. Yeah. Um, but as I said, I, f I just fell in love with mental health nursing. And, you know, I was thrown at the deep end working in locked wards with, with people who were incredibly unwell. And, and, you know, realistically, we would get the most complex mental health patients in the state. Sure. Um, this was at Greylands. Yeah. Yeah. For those overseas, what is Greylands? Um, Greylands is um, uh, still our biggest and oldest psychiatric facility. Sure. Um, so we have a wide range of patients there from acute. So acute means that someone is acutely unwell. So perhaps they've got hallucinations and delusions Mate, I have even have suicidal ideation. We've got also forensics there, which means that someone has a mental illness and then because of the mental illness has committed a crime and then they come under a different act uh, within law. And then you've got long-term folks who really um, have nowhere else to go. So their mental illness is so severe that it's affected every part of their life that a lot of them are unwanted anywhere else in society. Mm -hmm. It is is really the unwanted in society. Um, you know those really. You see that in these movies everywhere. The it, it, you know the maybe the really eccentric old man who who lives on on the streets or something and talks to himself. And I think there was one movie where this one guy was trying to bite his own face. In every city, you'll have those people. Correct, mm. but they're the ones that people don't want. They're the ones that people don't want to see on the streets because it frightens people. Why do you think it frightens people? It's the unknown. And also, do you think it's probably their worst fear? Possibly. Yeah, possibly. I mean, to see someone talking to themselves is is frightening and, and, and hallucinating as well. Are they? Or are they really talking to someone? Well, they could be. That's the thing. That's the thing. We just And sometimes we never actually know. Psychiatry has come so far that even now, we're looking at people who have previous diagnosis of a psychotic illness. And a psychotic illness is when someone loses touch with reality, has has delusions which are fixed false beliefs. You know, that's that's kind of a very basic understanding of psychosis. But for the last however many years, they've gone, okay, that person's got a psychotic psychotic illness. But what we're now seeing is a switch from that to looking at things like complex PTSD. Because what we now know is someone who's had this most amazing and continuous trauma has changed the structure of their brain and changed the way the neurons fire. So you can actually see things with complex PTSD oh, sure. or, or complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was something that was only known with war vets for so long. But, you know, we're now looking at people, for example, obviously people who've been in war. Uh, people who've been in domestic violence situations. Yeah. We now know that <clears throat> our Aboriginal folks have trauma passed down through their DNA. We all have trauma passed down through our DNA. Is that right? Absolutely. If you don't have this 
white middle class cisgender heterosexual upbringing and that has been for your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents, et cetera, et cetera. Nine times out of ten, you'll have some form of trauma. So I've got um, a Maori heritage. So I've got almost like that once were warriors type stuff coming down through my DNA. You know, people who perhaps have come over from Vietnam have seen the Vietnam War. Sure. And that's been passed down through the DNA from their parents. Wow. So the kids, like especially the baby boomers and the X-Gen and Y-Gen. Yeah. They're Absolutely. getting effects from their Correct. great grandparents that went through the war. Yep. So then what you wow. add on to that is trauma that's currently occurring to them. So as children, perhaps there's been sexual abuse or emotional abuse or, or, or physical abuse. So that's just another layer. So that's when you get this complex trauma. Psychiatry just changes so much. Right, my bad. It's, and it's so fascinating. How, how do you work with somebody that is experiencing visions? You were talking about a certain type of psychosis. Yeah. Is it just to listen to that? Or do you try and guide them out of that or play with those visions in order to heal them? It absolutely depends on the person yeah, and the situation. Um, you know, we like to talk about the idea of person-centered care, but that really is what you do. We often work with people who've got uh, auditory hallucinations. So they might hear voices or, or bells or, um, or anything really. Then they've got visual hallucinations. So they might see things, uh, you know, it could be anything from... We'll take my wife, for example. She was quite unwell for a little while and she used to see The Undertaker. And it was an 18th century Undertaker, you know, with the white yeah. high collars and the, the tall hat and, and stuff wow. like that. And you kind of go, okay, so what do you think that's about? And then you have a discussion around it. But I'm able to do that with her because she's not, she doesn't have a psychotic illness. Sure. She's got complex PTSD. Someone who's, who's absolutely psychotic. A lot of the time, if they are, um, I guess, visually hallucinating, you can't really interrupt them because they're just so in that visual hallucination. But that's stuff that we know now. 50, 60 years ago, you just go, oh, they're crackers. Yeah. I, I looked at a hospital yesterday. Um, I knew you were coming on. so I, <clears throat> And it was very different 50 years ago. They would lock them in a room yeah. and with a tiny hole in the door. And you see them poking their hands out the door and you know, electric shock treatment and... They're still doing that. Are they? Yeah. But it works. It does work? Yeah. So it is a chemical reaction in the brain. I mean, it's not the cause, but there is a reaction in the brain that allows them to see things, act in certain ways. We don't really know. That's the thing. You know, for some people, they may have an organic change in their brain. So, for example... Um, uh, people who get dementia with Lewy bodies, that means that they get visual hallucinations, but that's because their the structure of their brain has changed, which then means that the way that their brain cha works changes. And again, you know, people with um, car accidents, uh, I don't know, blowing their brains off with meth, it's a structural change. Right. We still really don't know. You still... Research and finding really out. don't know. Well, I mean, one of the things is, is you can't really get into the brain when they're having the hallucinations. Yeah. All you can really do is things like, um, I guess, CAT scans and MRIs and things yeah. like that. But to try and do an MRI on someone who's visually hallucinating. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Yeah. You know, let's put them in a tunnel and lock them into this small space just so that we can get a picture of their brain. We wouldn't do it because that'd be cruel. Is the problem getting worse, do you think? Because you've been in this industry how long now? I think I guesstimated the other day, probably about 28 years. Wow. Yeah. See, you look about 30. I What's know, going thank on? Thank you, love. It's my oil of overlay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah. so what do you think, Jane? Do you think the problem's getting worse or it's just being diagnosed more now? I think things are changing. Mm. I think things are changing. And I think as we, if, as we learn more and we experience more, we know more. I mean, the other thing is, is that it, we are learning more through research. So we know now that trauma's passed down through DNA, which we didn't know about 10 years ago. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. 
we now know that there's different ways that we can treat different things. So, for example, with depression, you can have, there's several different treatments. Depends on how serious it is and what type of depression it is. I, I was reading how many different types of depression there are. I, I just didn't understand it because, you know, you don't until you look more deeper into it. And oh my God. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, very interesting. And I think, I mean, to have a diagnosis of depression, you have to have had the symptoms for at least six months. So that that's basically what you get a diagnosis from. When you say the symptoms, what are they? Low mood. And for some, it can be reduced appetite. Uh, Sleeping. Reduced sex drive. Reduced sleeping. But then you can have it the other way. So you can have a greater appetite. You can have more sleeping. Um, and so what this is when we see that quite often someone will get a diagnosis and then they'll get a differential diagnosis, which means, so it's probably this, but it could also be this. We're not quite sure yet because there's so many overlaps. So, you know, there's overlaps between, I don't know, schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. Right. Um, so, you know, quite often depending on the clinician, you know, the doctor who's making the diagnosis, because we nurses can't make diagnosis, um, although we try. Um, <laughs> you spend probably more time with the patient. We do. We do. We can advise, certainly, but from a, a, a diagnostic viewpoint, it's not up to us to do that. Um, but what you'll see is that there's very similar symptoms and then as m the more they're observed, the more conversations we have and time, you'll get to learn exactly where this patient's at. So again, that's that's sometimes why you don't know straight away what's actually wrong with someone. Time tells. Yeah. Because I, I was listening to somebody talking about the difference and they said, look, it's like a normal depression. Like People are, get depressed hmm. on certain things. Like I, I remember when my sister passed, you know, I go through this. But to me, I thought, well, I'm grieving. That's normal. I'm, it's normal. I'm depressed. It's normal. I'm yep. trying to find and fill this void that was left in my life. But then when you're clinically depressed, it's yeah. like 18 hours a day. Don't want to get out of bed. Um, suicidal. Yep. Uh, potentially. Not potentially. Always. Yeah, yeah, not always. Lack of motivation yep. for things that you were motivated about Correct. before. And no enjoyment in life. It's called anhedonia. Right. So there's no enjoyment. That so, has to be chemical, right? Like you know, we just you, don't know. You know, like serotonin, yep. dopamine. What's the other one? Neuropinephrine, or like there's these O means. The lack of that. Well, certainly that is that is definitely one way that people can become depressed. Is is definite low chemical structure in their in their bloods. But the other way is is quite often um, reactive depression. If you had uh, grieved and not come out of that grief, and it had gone on. Sure. We would say that's a reactive depression because it's something that has caused it. Right. Before then, you didn't have it. Yeah, true. But when you lost Ferno and you didn't come out of it, that's a reactive depression. Right. Yeah. And and we would say it's an unresolved grief and, and things like that. Because I you know, went for nearly a year, and but I knew the month, it was January this year, I felt like I was emerging from deep waters. Like, and all of a sudden the colours are brighter. Yeah, and motivation came back yeah. and, you know, I knew then what had sort of happened. Um, even though I was fine through the process of before she passed, I wasn't prepared for the void left after. That was a big thing for me. But then, you know, looking at uh, depression online and doing a bit of reading before you came on, you know, I, I suddenly realised what variety they are in depression. Absolutely. And I'm sitting there going, how, one, how do you diagnose? And two, is there a cure? Are we just handling the situation or is there a cure? And what is the, like I, being a teacher for 12 years, I did notice a difference with the students coming through. And I didn't know whether that was social media as being a part of that making people more isolated. I'm on social media, but I'm an older guy. I'm a middle-aged guy. So, well, I've got no, nothing to prove. Like there's yes. no ego there anymore. Yes. It's like, well, I know my place in the world. Correct. But the youngsters coming through, they're looking at fake lives for one. Yep. 
realizing their life's not like that. We're being told at a very early age that all you have to do is think it and you'll get it. And so suddenly now they're not getting it. Something's wrong with me. Also, being medicated very early so they don't feel what that pain is to build a resilience and a resistance to that pain. And I used to say to my students that uh, it gets like school is, is fine. It, life is tough. You know, it gets tougher. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Adulting is hard. Adulting is hard. <laughs> I don't like it. I want to quit it often. You know, yeah. I want to go back to being an 11 That's again. That's right. You know, don't think about anything. I don't want to pay bills. Yeah. Look, it's not the cause of depression, but there's a big thing about self-worth, where self-worth comes from. You know, Jocelyn uh, told me that, Wayne, if you lose everything, including family, job, everything, you're on the street. Whatever you have left is what you should build your self-worth from. It's not an external thing. A lot of people, especially the youngsters now, their self-worth comes from how many followers they got. Adults right. come from how big their house is, what cars they have. But what I found out, and this is quite interesting actually, with Buddhism, Stoicism, some of the philosophies, yeah. even neurobiological science, yes. happiness does not equal pleasure. Correct. Pleasure is not happiness. Yep. And there was a Buddhist philosophy that we are in a constant state of suffering because we are constantly pursuing pleasure. Correct. So what's happened is pleasure is a dopamine. Mm -hmm. It doesn't give you peace. Happiness is peaceful. You're That's constantly why the kids love the pip 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 pip. They do. It's a dopamine hit. And and adults that will buy a more expensive car. And, um, mm -hmm. But you see, dopamine doesn't last. No. And in fact, the body builds resilience to dopamine, which means you need more dopamine in order to get the same pleasure. Absolutely. I found and I realized that we are constantly searching for pleasure, not because of the pleasure of the things we buy, but it's the relief of the pain and suffering that's within. Yeah. It's I, filling the void. It's filling that void. Yeah. I, and, you know, it goes back to ancient philosophies where they talk about people that lack a deep, full meaning in their life seek endless amounts of pleasure, even back then. Mm. And it's this never-ending circle. And I'm thinking people are putting their self-worth in the external things. So they're buying, that's the dopamine hit. They're getting bigger cars, bigger houses, and then realizing at the end of the day, why aren't they happy? You know, and I'm still thinking, emptiness. It's this, there's an emptiness mm. there. And I think I was seeing that with kids. Mm. It was worrying me. Yeah, I was I, getting very disturbed. <laughs> I mean, I was upset by it. And I used to come home and say what's happening with our society mm -hmm. you know parents have got an incredibly difficult job these days yep. because parents are going through it themselves yeah. and you know they say it's hard being a child it's harder being a parent parenting's the hardest thing i've ever done <laughs> <laughs> and i've heard that yeah it's know. the hardest job i've worked in really really tricky jobs like working in forensic mental health um that's tricky wow Parenting's harder because you constantly worry that you're stuffing them up. Your words you have power. Constantly huh? worry. And you think, I know he loves the PlayStation, but I know what's happening to his brain is like what cocaine does. Yeah. Do I give him what he loves and have him like me or do I put a firm boundary in and have him hate me? But knowing that the firm boundary is best for him. In the, in the long term. In the long term, absolutely. So that there's not that addiction. And this is where the addiction comes from. And this is why you have people addicted to sex, addicted to, to gaming. Yeah. You know, you have people who don't come out of their houses for months on end. I've heard that really bad in Korea and Japan. and uh, I mean, they have, uh, they have these camps where, you know, they – taken out of their homes by their parents and these people come and collect them in buses and take them away yeah. for like two months. And they're all going, oh, outside, fresh air. Yeah, yeah. But Literally. they end up loving it at yes. the end. Yeah. It's like rehab it, no, it for is, gamers, it you know. Yeah. Well, mm. I mean, we know that for gamers to to basically come off gaming, it's it's harder than someone withdrawing from cocaine. Wow. Because it's hitting so many more senses, yeah. I suppose. Absolutely. It can't be good. No. It ex achieves exactly what the creators wanted. Yeah, for sure. You know, look at Fortnite. 
for example. Yeah. Do you remember seeing that story about the nine-year-old girl in the UK who wet herself on the couch because she didn't want to stop the game? It's a prime example. Yeah. It's a prime example. And we're seeing kids now who are actually physically changed because they're spending so much time gaming. Their brains have actually changed. The studies that they're doing are showing that a kid, um, so let's say from the age of five right up to the age of 15, so that's 10 years, their brains actually change in structure because with all the, the dopamine and the, the norepinephrine, yeah, that's a hard one, it actually changes the structure of the brain because wow. that's the one that they're constantly using, but they're not using the other things like social. So we've got a whole, uh, a whole almost a, a range of children young adults who don't have social skills. I, I, that's one thing I noticed is this, this oral communication skill was starting to decline year after year. Because you know what I found is I would ask a question, there would be this delay that would happen because they're thinking about how they're going to be judged by the answer they give, you know, and I could see it. How frightening for them. I could no see it. No wonder so many have anxiety disorders. I, I got out of teaching and it wasn't because I disliked teaching. I love teaching. I'd just been doing it for so many years and I thought it's time for me to be a student again, you know, try different things. And, uh, and I have to say a lot changed after Fern. I got this philosophy of, I want a simple life. I want a simple life so I can appreciate the beauty in the simple things. Only because of what I learned from Fern. Like, you know, towards the end, you know, she never spoke about acting once. Uh, within three months, that was part of her whole life. In fact, she turned around and she was talking about things like candy she ate when she was a kid. Walking on the beach barefoot, feeling grass again, seeing the tree, seeing a sunset. Those were the things that were so important. And in fact, I, living through that with her, I, at the end of it, I said to myself, I've got to be conscious to make that decision to enjoy the simple things. Give up things that complicate your life. Keep things that complement your life. Keep it simple so you can enjoy those beautiful things, you know. I knew that was the right decision. So my work turned around and said, Wayne, we don't want to let you go, but what are you going to do? I said, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just know what I don't want to do anymore. Podcasting was just something that interested me because of conversations like this. And, you know, here I am talking to you about clinical depression and, and the effects of social media, but I could be talking also to a world champion, which I was, who used boxing to fight her depression. How amazing. And, you know, I, I do think exercise today is one of the least used tools to fight depression. Completely agree. And diet. Yep. Um but she felt, she said she felt the darkness out of the tunnel disappearing. And would you believe she then became a world champion because all she wanted to do was do that to alleviate that pressure. So it doesn't matter who I speak to. People are dealing with this sort of a thing in one way or another. Absolutely. You know? I often said that the people that remember Jane, that know you, is through your charity work. Okay. Like I wanted to know what you were doing for a living. <laughs> yes. When you sent me that, that message saying the bills. You're, you're, you're working at Royal Perth Hospital, mm. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Mm. One, it's good because it's just up the road. I know, right? <laughs> and now we can have lunch, Jane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I, people that, that uh, I said to them, I've got Jane Armstrong coming on. One was Troy Coward. Oh, and it, well, the thing is, I said, I've got a psych nurse coming on. She runs this charity and, um, and he goes, I know someone like that. And I said, well, who's your friend? And he goes, Jane Armstrong. I said, well, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's my friend too. And she's coming on. And he was like, oh, that's great. You know, what started that Jane? Oh, um, <sighs> and tell people about it. So I guess working in mental health, I've always worked with people who are homeless, the marginalized, you know, the people who are effectively treated like less than humans. A friend of mine actually messaged me. She's now living in Melbourne. And she said, listen, uh, mum and her friend truck 
don't ask me what a real name is. Uh, they go down on a Tuesday night, they get some donated food from a bakery and they take it down and they give it to the homeless. They want to have a rest for about six or eight weeks. They just want to have a break. They've been doing it 30 years. Wow. Um, do you think that you could manage it? I went, of course. And I was thinking, how complicated would that be? Just prior to that, though, I'd actually been going out on Saturday nights um, with uh, another crew and just going out and sitting and having coffee with with the homeless. Um, St. George's Cathedral, I think it is. Sure. Um, and just having conversations because I just thought, well, I've, I've got so much and uh, conversation is nothing. You know, yeah. some TLC is nothing. Mm. So we had this opportunity. Um, I, I discussed it with my partner at the time and we said, yeah, let's go for it. Um, so for a few weeks we, we took down the, the food that we picked up from the, the bakery that was donating it and there was probably 15 or 20 homeless folks and, you know, here's the food. Um, and then we started to talk to people. At the time, um, my stepson um, woke up one morning, he was nine, and he had an American accent. And he couldn't get rid of it. And that's because he was spending so much time on his devices. Uh, YouTube, uh, pew, 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 all that crap. And for about three months, he just couldn't get rid of the accent. Wow. A little bit worrying? Uh, incredibly. And, you know, my concerns were obviously heightened knowing where the potential that could lead to. Mm. Because you've got both ends of the spectrum now. Yeah. You're a parent, but you're also dealing with the friends that where life hasn't taken them in places they wanted to go when they were this age. Correct. And they're Correct. just dealing with that struggle now. But as a mental health nurse, I've parented all my life. Yeah. Because essentially what we do when someone comes into hospital is we reparent. We're caring for them. We're setting healthier boundaries. We're reteaching them how to function. We're looking after them. We're giving them medication. That's all parenting, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So all my life I've been parenting just with slightly older children and probably much naughtier. So we started to do this and I certainly, I guess, again, just fell in love with it. The conversations that we have with these people were amazing and they absolutely embraced my stepson. They absolutely embraced with just wholeheartedly. What a therapy that is for him. Absolutely. Very smart. He served them food. He sat down and ate dinner with them. He had Milo with them. He had real conversations with them. That should be in high schools. Should be obligated that year 12 students need to go out and do that. Perspective. We'll get to that. Perspective. Right? <laughs> so um, very quickly we just went, no, nah, we want to do more. So we then started to cook and very quickly it went from about 15 people to 75 um, and we'd cook up these great huge vats of uh, pasta and spag bog and, you know, beans, whatever we could afford. Sure. Um, because at that point it was self, self-funded. Mm. Um, and then I wanted to share and I got really excited so I started to share it on Facebook. That's all it is, Jane. Um, that's, that's where it is. That's where so many people, yeah. I mean, I, I, in the intro for you, I said rain, hail or shine mm. or COVID. I see Jane out there with a group of people with smiles on their faces. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> look, I love it. Um, and it makes you present. It makes you present. And it's one thing that I don't think people are today is present. Yeah. When you're present, you're not thinking about the next car that you want to buy. Or the next mansion. That's know. why I like this. Yeah. The next McMansion. We're, we're present now. Correct. Listening. Yeah. 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 Having a real conversation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're now up to, I think, about 120 volleys. Really? Um, probably around about 10 schools that come on board with us. Um, so there are schools? Yeah, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we're not allowed to have under 18s, which is a real shame. Um, mm -hmm. And that was... Because of what? Supervision and all the things that come with associated that? Associated with the risk, really. Sure. Rightly or wrongly. Um, I miss having the kids down, though, to be able to sit and have those conversations. Yeah. And 
never felt unsafe and I never worried about the kids because our street friends would look after them. Yeah. They'd look after us. You know, I think in seven years that we've been running, we've probably had maybe half a dozen incidents where I've just said, pack up, we're going. Yeah. But have never felt at risk personally. But, you know, they're people that's like us. That's just had the and wrong, that's right. wrong things ditched yeah. at them in life, you know. And, and I, I get really shirty when someone turns around and says, oh, they're just a druggie. Well, you know, people take drugs for a reason. People take drugs because they want to have relief from the pain that they have. Yeah. That is the core reason. They don't do it just for shits and gills, mm. you know. Um, people don't choose to be homeless. I had a conversation with a lady the other day and she said, oh, um, such and such, she, she likes to be homeless. She chooses to be homeless. And I just looked around and went, do you, would you choose to be homeless? Would you choose when the recent downpours that we've had yeah. to have to try and somewhere to find somewhere dry to sleep? And if you got wet... To then have to go and find somewhere that will give you dry clothes. Would you choose that? Would you choose to try and find a toilet in the middle of that downpour just to go and use the toilet? I, I don't understand this attitude. It's been great. You so know, your job is bringing that conversation and allowing people to understand that conversation Better. Absolutely. On so many levels too. Mm. You know, it's all about the reasons why people are homeless. It's, it's mental health. It's physical health. It's grief. It's societal now as well. Absolutely. At the expense of, you know, when you start seeing young parents that cannot rent anywhere. No. Because it's too expensive. Yeah. They're or not even can't get, even get a rental. Can't. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They can't even get in. I mean, even if they could afford it. Yeah. There's nowhere for them to go. Yeah. Um. I recently had a uh, Ida Hobbit was recently, which is International Day against Homophobia, Biphobia, inter Interphobia, and Transphobia. Um, and I had this amazing panel of amazing individuals. One woman who was assigned male at birth, who's transitioned to to, woman, to a woman, has been looking for eighteen months to find somewhere to live. She's been sleeping on someone's couch that whole time, and. When she has found somewhere, they've seen her and gone, no, nah, because she's trans. Oh, really? Yep. So there's so many of these these complexities that people face. Do you think it's Perth specifically? Now, we're always a little behind the times Wait with understanding. Long. Yeah, look, I do. I, I, I don't think we're quite at the point that the eastern states are. Mm. I think we're still probably 10 to 15 years behind. Really? That much? What? Certainly when I came out, however many years ago it was, many years ago. Well, black and white television. <laughs> How rude. <laughs> you know me far too well. Um, you know, my issues, I lost a lot of friends. Lost a lot of friends. The issues that I faced then is what our trans folks face now. Oh, okay. But worse. You know, it's something like 60 events of discrimination per day what a trans person faces. 60 events. And that's actually a report by the Human Rights Commission. Um, and now can you imagine the effect on their, on their mental health? And if you're LGBTIQ+, you're 30 times more likely to be homeless. Is that right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's complex, but I love being able to sit down and have, have conversations with our straight folks. Yeah. Because of... Well, they are the best conversations. Oh, Do you know how I know that? When I moved to Sydney in 1994, we were the odd ones out because in my workplace, I was straight and the rest were gay. <laughs> so it was reversed. Yeah, yeah. So, but what, what it did is it introduced me. I came from Perth back in the 90s and late 80s. I actually remember going to Sydney with you. Yes, that's right. I, yeah. And I built some of my best friends that were there. And I used to uh, call back home and say, God, it's so different here. Yeah. And I remember when Fern first came over and she's walking around going, God, it's so open and free over here. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. But I remember then, and look, there was a time then when I wanted to write and like an idiot, I wanted to get into the dingiest place I could find 
Um, and all I took was a sleeping bag, a toaster and a laptop. And I lived toaster? A toaster, yeah. I lived at the what back of a strip club in the cross. In this room. It's like the same building, but half of the building is you know, for these dingy apartments and half. So I used to hear the boom, boom, boom of the strip clubs. <laughs> and, but you know what I did, Jane, is I actually, like you, I, because the cross had a big group of homeless people. And every Christmas I used to go and give them what they wanted more than anything. And it wasn't, was I, I used to buy cartons of cigarettes and chocolates. And so Christmas time, my friend Oliver and I would go and deliver cigarettes and chocolates, give them out packets. But I sat down over a couple of months every day and at night and uh, talked to the homeless people. And I became a group of them and some of the best stories. This one guy had a green Celtics jacket and he said to me, Wayne, um, I met my wife in that strip club over there. He goes, it wasn't like it is now. We used, they used to serve pasta and food in there. Flash. And, yeah. And he goes, my, you know, I met my wife and it was the best time of my life and things didn't go out. And I'd hear all these fantastic stories. And they knew, like they, I said, look, I just live over there. Um, I'm in this one bedroom apartment. And for sure, if it's cold, feel free to come. Because I knew them by that time. But again, the best stories ever. And I actually bought that culture when I came back here and it was so weird because I'd be sitting there with my mum and uh, during Christmas time. And I said, my mum, I've got to go and give that purse. There was, a, there was a lady there. So I went back in the shop, again, bought cigarettes and chocolates and <laughs> took it over. And she was like, you know, but it was to my mum at first was like, what are you doing? It just Foreign. wasn't part of the culture. Mm -hmm. But because we'd been exposed to that so much and, you know, over there, you develop an empathy and, and a sympathy and you realize, and, and another thing is traveling, going to some of the poorest countries in the world Absolutely, gave me perspective. But you know, what was the biggest shock, Jane, was that the kids were happier. We were in Vietnam and in Burma and in parts of South Africa where, you know, they call them the shanty towns, you know, little corrugated iron. The kids would be playing and they would go out and I said to this Vietnamese lady, where is your child? And she points towards the mountains in the distance somewhere over there. <laughs> but you know, they'd come back and they'd help cook dinner. And we, we, I've got a picture of a seven-year-old and a five-year-old cooking dinner. And for dinner, everyone would sit around uh, and tell stories and the elders would tell their stories like it was a thousand years ago. Yeah. But you know what I realized is the kids didn't want the next iPad because they didn't have it to begin with. So, you know, there wasn't a dopamine hit there to have. Their dopamine hit was going out into the bush and using a, a stick yeah. to, to build something yeah, or dig a hole. Yeah. And in a way it was our childhood. Correct. They always said that, you know, the BMX bikes lying on the ground at the front of the house was a good moment because all your friends were over. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, we built ramps, we went into the bush and I'm so happy we grew up because we were the transition of the computer age, you know, the computers Correct. were games were just coming in. But even though the we had the Atari, we had the Ataris, yeah. but if it came to playing decathlon on the Atari or going out with friends on bikes, we'd definitely choose the bikes and friends. It was very different. Where, like you said, now it's cultured today that the creators know how to tap into that dopamine hit. Absolutely. Colors of the screen. It's yeah. like your phone with the blue the blue screen, you know, the blue light. But this is also, I was reading an article the other day about um, addiction to, to betting and, and gambling and Ugh. stuff. So this is what is being created because they have to buy things and, you know, they, I have to have this many coins so I can get to the next level. Do you know, but I have yeah. to buy that. Do you know how, I, I knew a friend that was addicted to pokies. Wow. Um, well, his wife was my friend and he was the partner. He said to me, Wayne, it got so bad, I can't walk past, because in the pubs in Sydney, they all have poking machines. I can't walk past them without getting this thing. I've got to go in and put a coin in. Wow. He's be he got treatment. He got, got over it. But he was telling me about that addiction. And I was like, are you serious? He goes, Wayne, so bad. The problem with gambling is you don't just affect yourself. You affect the people around you. Correct. So, but like any addiction, the primal cause of any addiction is the dopamine hit, right? Absolutely. God.
What do we do, Jane? I think we're lucky, though. I think we grew up in an era where addiction was an alcoholic, a smoker. Yeah. Uh, that was addiction. Yeah. Addiction now is, is, is gambling, it's gaming, it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's sex, it's buying. Shopping, shopaholics and all that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's so many different pressures now. Um, it's no wonder people have mental health problems. Yeah. I think so. It's no wonder people end up in the streets too. Yeah. Really. And I think it will get worse. Unfortunately. Unless there is this massive EMP, electronic magnetic pulse, wipes out all electronics. Then everyone has to sit there and go, well, we've got to go get food. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to go hunt something. You know, kids don't have electronics. I mean, unless it takes a great reset or somebody intelligent uses the gaming to get them out of that gaming. Because, you know, there's a, a game now with mathematics. There's a, Jocelyn worked um, in technology and she worked with the two guys that programmed Grand Theft Auto. And uh, they were from Oxford and now they were working with in America. And, and are they using their powers for good now? Yeah, they are. Well, you know, um, one thing one guy said is that they're now, which is, it's bad at the same time, is they're, you know, you talked about Fortnite. And uh, I think the other game is the war game, Call of Duty. That's it. Like um, they're teaching the maths using gaming. Okay. So if you throw this, the trajectory of this, and they're teaching yeah. them, you know. Uh, so they're trying to work within that realm. But what do you do? Too little, too late. Do you think so? I mean, look, there's so many things with technology that are good. I mean, uh, we've got PET scans which can actually look at the perfusion of blood through our bodies, um, MRIs, all these different things. You can now have remote surgery. That's fantastic. It's amazing. Mm. Um, that's using the powers for good. I don't know. But look at the youth. The youth today is going to be leading the country tomorrow. It's scary. Isn't it? It's very scary. That's what scared me the most when I was teaching. <laughs> you know, because... I'd see it every year. Every year I'd be looking at kids that were on so much medication because they would have to fill in the form. Also because of what we were teaching. And, you know, I was teaching social media for mass communications. Wow. Okay. And the first thing I used to say to them is always shoot for respect, not attention. It lasts longer. If you're just here to get attention by social media, it's going to come and go and it's going to hit you in the ass. But if you're good at something... It means your worth is not this. If you play the piano well, play the piano well. Learn off others that play it better. It will last longer. It's more respectful because you're going for respect, not attention. And I thought, well, like you, I was in a position to sort of try and bring that, make that journey a little, that transition a little bit easier so they don't just go off the deep end, you know, because it is like the way we are going and I find it worse in Asia. Do you know, Jane, I was in a hotel <laughs> and there was a, a, a husband and wife, our age, every morning for breakfast, they wouldn't say anything. He would be on one phone. She, they would be playing a game. He would be playing his game, different game. She had two phones playing her game for an hour through breakfast while me and my friends were talking. We'd be like, oh, there's our, our friends again. Wow. And can you imagine if they have kids? So when you see restaurants and you see families and their kids are on iPads and the parents are on phones. They're all on phones. They're not talking to each other. What the hell? Okay. And I find it worse. I find it worse in the Asian culture. I don't know what it is. Well, it's part of the culture, isn't it? It is part of their culture. To me, it's going to get worse. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. It's going to get worse, you know. So where, where do you see the charity going from here? Um, in the interim, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. I know every Tuesday night... We feed between 150 and 200 folks. We try and make it as nutritious as possible. We'll just continue doing what we do. Where do you do that? Uh, down near. Um, Is it one particular place yes, or a few? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's near MacIver train station. MacIver. Yeah. MacIver or MacIver. MacIver. Where is that? Um, uh, do you know where the Royal Perth multi-story car park is? Oh, okay. Just near there. Oh, yeah. So not, not far from here. Not at all. Okay. Speeding distance. So if people want to contact you, 
or one of Facebook our, through Facebook, yeah. which is Jane Armstrong. Uh, no, Homelessness We Care. We Care. Yeah. Yeah. I brought that up at the beginning. I'll put all that in the show notes. Okay. In that way. Thank you. So you're going to be, so your goal is just to keep doing what you're doing. Yep. And is the problem getting worse? And we talked about this, but can you physically see more people? I think so. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think we've seen, certainly over COVID, COVID was tough for so many people. Um, so many people lost their jobs. Um, and then... Uh, well, domestic abuse went up. Oh, domestic violence went up hugely. Hugely. Oh, that's what we would read about. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, you know why people are so used to spending time apart. Correct. They don't really know their spouse. Correct. Well, this is why people <laughs> successfully partners. have relationships in FIFO, isn't it? Yeah, true. Um, it's a it's a worry for them to give up FIFO. You know, I had a friend, uh, a wife, and she said, Wayne, it's just weird because when he comes back, it's almost like he's stepping on my territory. Yes. And they we have to make rules. And, you know, and also he wants to come back and relax because he's been working. I've had the kids. I want to I I break. I want a break too. I want a break too. And they had to work out this sort of uh, equilibrium balance, which they have done. But I find it very concerning as well that you're more comfortable being away from the home. Because at one stage you're going to retire and you're going to come back. <laughs> Do you know how many relationships end when that happens? Mm, I'm not surprised. Um, so, I mean, that was definitely a huge contributing factor mm. for, for homelessness. Um, and then we had the end of the um, moratorium and evictions uh, March last year, I think it was. And because for a period of time, especially during COVID, the government put uh, a moratorium I was going to on ask letting people be evicted. So if they didn't pay their rent, oh, really? um, you know, for whatever reason they were being evicted, it was stopped. So they had housing at least. So that ended. And then so many people were booted out. Um, and then what we're also seeing now is because house prices have gone up, unfortunately yeah. greedy landlords are putting rent up. Yeah. Um, I know of a, a, a single mum with four kids who is living in her car because... She can't find somewhere to live. Jesus. Yeah. So we've definitely seen an increase. And I'm, yes, we've got lots of things happening and, you know, you've got pollies out there spruiking that, you know, they've just done this 36,000 million, trillion, billion deal to build all these houses and but we're not seeing any mm. numbers on the on the ground reduce. You know, there's, 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 there is stuff happening. There's a lot of discussions happening, but it's at the coalface. We're not seeing any changes, mm. which is really sad. Well, let's hope it gets better, Jane, Touch wood. for all of us, you know. Well, we I, I love to having a chat with you. And I'm sure that people watching, if they want to come down and they'll contact you on the Facebook page, Absolutely. I'll put all those details up. But Thank you. Yeah. We love what you're doing. Thank you. And I just love you. I love you. <laughs> Can we do this again? <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah. Let's do it. Absolutely. Let's do it again. Yeah. I'd well, love to. we're sort of neighbours, sort of. Well, we are almost. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, thanks for coming. <laughs>